What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hi listeners, as you might be able to tell from this episode's title, today's subject and style is going to be a little bit different. You probably know my podcast as your Asian true crime, mystery, and horror hub. But today I'm going to bring you a very old-timey horror and true crime story that, no doubt, most of you have heard about at some point. I am so excited and proud to tell you guys that for this episode, I've partnered up with the amazing gaming and entertainment group Bandai Namco Entertainment Asia. If you're into gaming, or if you have to constantly endure other people talking about gaming, you may recognize some of their most beloved and popular works, such as Dark Souls, Ace Combat, Dragon Ball, Tekken, and Elden Ring, which honestly drew so much praise and attention. But if you love horror and gaming the way I do, where you'd rather play something not too intense, then there's one game series you have to know about, The Dark Pictures Anthology. Do you remember reading Goosebumps or similar books as a kid? Do you remember getting those cool books where you get to choose your own path and meet different endings? Well, this is basically the same except in game format, where you can play either solo or with friends. You get to make choices based on your own intuition and understanding. And whether you and your friends end up alive or not is entirely dependent on your decisions in the game. I have played all the games in the Dark Pictures Anthology, and I love them all. So this brings me back to this episode. The newest game launched on November 18, and it is titled The Devil in Me. This game can be found on several platforms including PlayStation 4 and 5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X and S, and even on your PC via Steam. So in order to entice you and give you a better backstory of this game, I prepared the special episode today to bring you into the world of H.H. Holmes, where we will learn about who he was, his methods, his crimes, and everything in between. I will also give you a brief but factual overview of the game and how it ties in with the tale of H.H. Holmes. So what do most people know about him? He was coined as the first serial killer in America. He was said to have built this quote-unquote castle where he specialized in murdering his guests 
to profit from their life insurance policies. Some say he had all these secret rooms and secret mechanisms built into the hotel where it made it easy to trap and murder his guests. Some people claim he must have been some kind of genius in order to have pulled this off. How true are any of these statements? Is he really what people say he is? Or is it just a passing of time and rumors that kind of made him out to be this legend that's bigger than life? In a sense, we will never find out. But allow me to present to you the facts, and you can decide for yourself. Let's begin. H.H. Holmes was not always known as H.H. Holmes. His birth name was Herman Webster Mudgett, which really sounds a lot less mysterious. He was born on May 16, 1861, in a small town called Gilmanton in the state of New Hampshire. As expected, families back then usually had multiple children, and he was the third child. He had an older sister, an older brother, a younger sister, and a younger brother which is like the ultimate balance for him as a middle child. Two older siblings, two younger siblings, one boy and one girl each. Some say his family was wealthy, some say they did okay, others say they were extremely poor. But regardless, he had what he needed and was able to receive all the schooling deemed necessary at the time. It's hard to say what he was like as a child as he is long gone and records may not be 100% reliable. But sources strongly indicate that he was very bright and capable beyond his years. He had a fascination with science, and designing and putting together basic machinery was a hobby of his. Some also say that he had a lesser-known hobby of torturing and killing small animals, which to us now screams serial killer in the making. If you recall, the McDonald's triad is a set of three factors, which includes bedwetting, killing and hurting animals, and fascination with setting things on fire. If a young person, mostly those aged five and older, happen to fit into any of the two, then it's an indication that they may grow up to have violent tendencies, especially the serial kind. If you're two years old and you accidentally wet the bed, and kill your family rabbit. That probably won't count because you're way too young and accidents happen. So just keep that in mind. Whether or not Herman wet the bed as an older child or liked to set fire is not clear. But harming animals is quite a loud statement in and of itself. His cruelty to animals ranged from hurting them to see what would happen, to killing them, and then to dissecting them. Curiosity is a great trait for a child, but this kind of morbid curiosity is definitely less common, and somewhat concerning. Despite growing up in a seemingly happy home, it was stated that Herman's mother was extremely religious and cold towards her children, while his father had problems with alcohol and was physically violent towards the family. Sources indicated that he would lock his children in rooms and not feed them for long periods of time and when they cried excessively, he would use kerosene-soaked rags to quiet them. Whether or not that became a contributing factor to his later deeds is something to think about. Friendly reminder, though, not everyone who grows up in abusive households become criminals. Aside from having a supposedly tough home life, 
Herman also had a tough school life. Let's face it, children can be kind of cruel, especially to those that stand out even a little bit. Herman was not your typical child. He was very smart, and he was also kind of weird. He was bullied for being different, and I'm sure that didn't help his mental health. One incident that stuck with Herman for life was the day his bullies decided to drag him into a local doctor's office. The clinic was closed at the time, but the doors were unlocked. In the clinic was one of those skeletons doctors tend to have standing around to show that they're professional doctors. Well, the bullies thought it was hilarious to make him face a skeleton, as they knew it would scare him. But instead of traumatizing him for life, it actually sparked something in him, something that pretty much helped determine his future. He realized he no longer felt fear towards the skeleton, and instead, his curiosity deepened. I guess that was not the outcome the bullies were looking for. But what do you expect when you bully the odd child? Another life-defining moment in Herman's life was when he witnessed the death of one of his childhood friends, a boy named Tom. Yes, he was a weird kid, but even weird kids have friends. The two friends were out and about exploring an old abandoned house when Tom fell from the second floor. On the surface, it appeared to be an accident, where two boys were doing what boys do, and it just ended in tragedy. But some people, mostly in hindsight, questioned whether or not this was an accident, or if little Herman graduated from killing animals to killing humans. There were multiple defining moments in Herman's life, including his home life, his school life, and his own personal interests. But there's more. Like many young people today, Herman Webster Mudgett was intent on finding a suitable career, but had trouble doing so. Let's go through this part of his life in chronological order. After graduating from Phillips Exeter Academy at the age of 16, he decided to become a teacher. Those were different times back then. I cannot imagine a 16-year-old teaching kids today. Around this time, when he was only 17, he met a wealthy young woman named Clara Lovering, and she was head over heels in love with him. He seemed to have felt the same way towards her, because the two got married not long after. And in the year 1880, their son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, was born. Keep in mind, this is not present day, so milestones and life in general kind of moved way faster than it does today. Also, as Clara was from a wealthy family, it was rumored that he was in it for the money. It provided him some form of stability, knowing that money was around, and it also gave him the freedom to pursue his passion in life. After taking up the teaching job, Herman realized this just wasn't interesting or stimulating enough for him. So he went on job hopping, trying to find something he felt passion for, something that sparked a light bulb in his head. It seemed that he finally found what he longed for in the year 1882, when he was 21. Rather than saying it's something he wanted, it could very well be something that he was destined for, considering his childhood. He decided to enroll in the Department of Medicine and Surgery at the University of Michigan, and he and his wife reached an agreement where he would go to Michigan on his own while his wife stayed home to raise his child and fund his studies. 
He struggled to keep himself enrolled in school, though, as it was not cheap, and he developed a slight hatred towards the rich kids who went to school with him. As he worked and learned in school, he came to the realization that something was going on. You see, cadavers were brought into the medical school as learning material for dissecting. The fact is that there were never enough cadavers for their learning to be extensive. But soon he learned that there were under-the-table transactions going on at the university, where cadavers would be brought in by unknown sources. Yes, basically body snatchers were working secretly with the school janitor and anatomy lab workers, providing them with extra cadavers and then getting paid for digging up the recently deceased. Herman found this fascinating and also fueled his desire to follow the same path. He needed the money and he already spent hours daily looking at dead people, so it wasn't an issue for him. He had become fairly well acquainted with the human body, and it is probably safe to say he was desensitized. If you've never seen a dead person before, digging up a grave and taking the body might seem like an impossible task, but not to someone like Herman, who had ample experience with dead animals and dead people alike. He began to do two different things in order to make more money. He would take some of the anatomy lab cadavers and make them completely unrecognizable, either by cutting, burning, or destroying parts of the body. Then he would pretend that these people died accidentally, and he would claim to be the beneficiary of their life insurance policies, and thus get insurance payouts. It's a weird scheme. And obviously that would be much harder to pull off nowadays because insurance is much stricter and science has progressed so much. But I'm sure back then things were different and people probably had to do things based on good faith. Another way he made more money off cadavers is by going around morgues and cemeteries, stealing them, then bringing them to different med schools to sell. He knew the tricks and how cadavers were in demand so this worked out for him quite well. Herman managed to earn lots of money through his little illegal and immoral schemes, which meant that he was more or less financially independent, which also meant he no longer needed his wife Clara around. The two basically parted ways for good around the time Herman graduated in 1884, and that would be the last time Herman ever saw Clara or his son again. There were various rumored weird incidents and strange disappearances around the time he was in medical school and the years following his graduation. One source claimed that his landlady had found a dead baby in his room after searching the apartment building for the source of a horrible smell. When she found the body, Herman simply reminded her that he was a med school student and that the baby cadaver was simply part of his homework. Nowadays, we'd call the police right away, but again, Times were different. The landlady didn't call anyone, nor did she kick him out. She just told him to not bring this kind of homework back again. And she's absolutely right. Because even if it was legit homework, having a dead body sitting around your apartment building just doesn't seem like a good idea. Another source stated that after Herman moved to New York for a bit after graduating, a young boy who was last seen with him had suddenly disappeared. The police did question him, but he denied any involvement with the boy's disappearance. After that run-in with the police, 
Herman quickly left New York. Whether or not he was involved is unclear, as him leaving town could indicate him being guilty, or simply just not wanting to get questioned further. Either way, looks a little suspicious. In another incident, he was working at a pharmacy, and a local boy passed away after taking medicine from his pharmacy. He again denied any involvement in the boy's death, and once police left him alone, he packed up and left quietly. Again, this could have been a total coincidence. Who knows what kind of things people died from back then? But again, him leaving immediately is a bit of an eyebrow raiser. If he's genuinely innocent, he must have been the unluckiest man in the world, or a grim reaper, leaving people dead or missing everywhere he went. Not only was he in the middle of these random deaths and disappearances, he was also said to have been in debt in every single place he stopped at. This was also another reason he was so keen on only staying in a place for a short time. He didn't want to pay people back, didn't want to risk getting noticed, so he had to resort to a nomadic lifestyle. Eventually in the year 1885, he arrived in the Windy City, also known as Chicago. He wanted a fresh start, a new life in a place where no one knew him. He had already left everything he knew behind anyway, including his family. What better way to get a fresh start than to change your name in a new city? And that's what he did. He changed his name from Herman Webster Mudgett to his more commonly known name, Henry Howard Holmes, or better known as H. H. Holmes. He used his new name to take the pharmaceutical exams in 1886 and began working as a pharmacist in the Englewood District on the south side of Chicago. Something you may not realize about H.H. H. Holmes is that he was quite the ladies' man. It's kind of odd to me, knowing how he was the weird kid growing up, how he had a difficult childhood, and yet he grew up to be this guy that women lusted after. Was he particularly handsome? Maybe, according to some women back then, or even beauty standards back then. But more importantly, he knew how to treat women and knew how to get them to fall for him. In other words, he had a type of charm that women appreciated, and that helped him continue down this path of deception and murder. So Holmes had now settled in Chicago. What's next? Like I mentioned, he began working as a pharmacist, and it was rumored that the pharmacy was owned by a nice older couple. Not long after he began working there, he ended up actually owning the pharmacy. How did that happen, you ask? There are many explanations for this. First theory, the owner died, either a natural death or by the hands of Holmes, and Holmes ended up buying the pharmacy from the widow. Second theory, the owner died, and Holmes offered to buy the place but never paid for it, and he ended up either killing the widow or semi-forced her out of the pharmacy. Third theory, probably unlikely, knowing what kind of man Holmes was, he simply worked hard, so he saved enough money to buy the pharmacy from the couple. What sounds more plausible to you? While Holmes was in Chicago, he hit another repeat major milestone. He supposedly fell for a young woman named Murda Belknap. 
a woman he met during his stay in Minneapolis, who, surprise, surprise, came from a wealthy family. What are the odds, right? Despite being legally married to Clara, Holmes still ended up marrying his new wife in the year 1887, and their first-born daughter, Lucy, was born in July of 1889. Book and record-keeping wasn't exactly their strong suit back then, and totally understandable. Realistically, what can they do? Get online and check records? Get on the phone and call his family? Holmes allegedly did try to file for divorce from his first wife, Clara, but the papers never went through. So Murda and Holmes, being a newlywed couple, meant that Holmes began to reap the benefits of having a wealthy wife. He had a new wife and owned a pharmacy. You would think he would be satisfied now, but no. He was aiming for one more achievement. He wanted to buy the plot of land across from his pharmacy and build something. Many sources differ on the following account, but not enough to affect what really happened. Some say Murda's family gifted him a sum of money, and he used it to buy the land and build a hotel. Some say he used his insurance scam money and purchased the piece of land to build his business there. Some others say that Holmes was simply a hard and diligent worker And as an employee, he somehow managed to save enough money to purchase that piece of land. Hard and diligent worker, sarcasm intended. Either way, he ended up owning that pharmacy and also managed to get the money to build his new castle slash hotel. What business is this? Why is it called a castle? Is it really a hotel? In the game The Devil and Me, you get to be a part of the Lonnet Entertainment TV crew and tour around the faithful recreation of the H.H. Holmes murder castle. But a tour is not all that you'll be getting. Be placed in the H.H. Holmes victim's shoes as the crew is subjected to several torturous incidences crafted by Grantham Dumet. Let's take a look now at how this murder castle was created. Holmes hired a construction company to begin building a two-story mixed-use building in the year 1887. He told anyone who asked that his intention was to set up shops on the first floor and turn the second floor into individual apartment units. This was a reasonable answer, really, considering how Chicago was one of the biggest cities at the time, and with more people, you probably needed more apartments and shops. He was a very calculating man, so he already knew that by renting out individual shops and units, he could make a very good living and probably never have to worry about money ever again. But as construction continued, he began to get weird ideas. Sometimes we have weird ideas, but we don't necessarily put them into action. But Holmes was a man of action. He decided instead of a two-story building, he wanted to add more to it, as in a third floor and a huge basement. Sure, not weird. Who doesn't want more space? What was kind of strange was that instead of sticking with the same construction company throughout the whole process, he switched around various different ones. On one hand, it feels counterintuitive 
because it's a hassle and their methods of construction may differ, which can cause issues down the line. But he didn't care, because what he really wanted was to make sure that not one person had access to all the blueprints of his new castle. Company A may know what the ins and outs of the first floor look like, but they would have no idea what the other floor layouts would look like. It's like his way of keeping things to himself, never letting others know what was really going on. The construction process was a bit of a train wreck, as you can imagine. Holmes was sued multiple times for non-payment, and this is not like stealing candy from a store. We're talking about designing, materials, workers, labor, all that. There's definitely a lot of money involved. All these lawsuits, though, went nowhere for whatever reason, as he probably just hired new construction companies whenever the previous one decided to jump ship. Regardless of all these hiccups along the way, Holmes managed to get his castle built around the year 1891. It was a four-year-long project and it may have taken longer than anticipated, but that doesn't matter. He got what he wanted. Now the real work for Holmes began. He needed to find tenants for both the stores and his apartment units. He began hiring people left and right, advertising his apartment units for anyone who cared. I imagine it wouldn't have been too difficult renting places back in the old days, at least the process would have been a lot simpler than it is today. But Holmes had one condition for all his tenants. They must have a life insurance policy. Weird regulation, right? And is it realistic? No, not really. I don't believe life insurance was the norm back in the day, and for anyone who was struggling, this would mean extra expense on their end. Who would even consider getting life insurance when they can hardly survive. Well, don't worry. Holmes has your back. If you're truly interested in becoming his tenant, and you don't have money to buy life insurance, guess what? Holmes will pay on your behalf. What a guy. But wait. Everything has its price and strings always come attached, especially with Holmes. He will pay for you, but you must put him down as your insurance beneficiary. We obviously know that it's a huge scam alert right there, and not just financially, but the kind that may cost you your life. Back then, did people really think this was a possibility? If it wasn't common enough, who would even jump to this conclusion? And even if someone was skeptical, they were likely struggling and were out of options. If they could move in and not pay for their own life insurance, why not? What starts happening next is probably no mystery to anyone. People start going into the castle and never coming back out. Do they go in and become hermits for life? Is there a secret tunnel leading elsewhere? Not likely. Normally, people still need to go out and buy groceries and run errands. And secret tunnels... Kind of sounds fantastical. So what was going on? What happened to these people? Now that the castle was built, what was it like? Was it really full of secret chambers and booby traps? Every single source you look at will give you different information regarding his castle layout. 
But here's a list that could be considered more or less agreed upon, but do take this with a grain of salt. About 50 doorways that opened up to walls, multiple windowless rooms, staircases that led you to walls, soundproof rooms, rooms that had no doors or windows, only accessible via hidden trapdoors, doors you can only open from the outside, rooms with secret passageways, rooms used as gas chambers, and multiple forms of trapdoors and chutes which made moving heavy objects, like human bodies, a lot easier. The list goes on, but you get the idea. This almost sounds like an intense funhouse or escape room, and your goal is to find your way out without dying or losing hope. And finally, we have the infamous and mysterious basement. I say infamous because it was allegedly the place where he conducted human experiments. It was said that he had surgical tables, all sorts of medical equipment and tools, and of course, a crematorium where he could burn large and heavy objects, such as human bodies. This man came prepared, that's for sure. So in a way, is it really surprising people began disappearing after entering the castle? If they were not murdered for insurance money, surely they'd get lost somewhere, fall into some hidden room, or get stuck in a chute. I'd probably have a mental breakdown if I were stuck in that place trying to get out. Something very important took place in the year 1893 that really pumped Holmes up. The World's Columbian Exposition, or simply known as the World's Fair, was taking place in Chicago. If you're not familiar with what this is, it's basically a huge five-month-long event that celebrated the arrival of Christopher Columbus in America. This was a huge thing taking place in Chicago, and it would undoubtedly draw tons of people to the city, which meant people would need to find lodging. With this event in mind, the additional third floor of his castle would be perfect for this. He also took this opportunity to name his hotel the World Fair Hotel. He had a lot of positive energy, believing that with the hotel and with the fair, he would be able to make tons of money and be rich and set for life. But being a swindle and a criminal, it's only a matter of time until people start cornering him, which made him nervous. Remember, not only did he owe tons of money to construction companies, he was also offing people one by one and collecting their life insurance. It's crazy how greedy he is, because if he had just stuck with the original hotel plan, he could probably live pretty comfortably for life. But no, it was never enough with Mr. Holmes. After getting chased around by various people for non-payment and getting accused for insurance fraud, Holmes decided it was time for him to leave town for a little bit. Maybe start a business elsewhere, in a place no one knew of him. Sometime in 1894, he arrived in Fort Worth, Texas. Why Fort Worth? Being the charming and handsome fellow that he is, he had previously met two sisters who owned a property there. Their names were Annie and Minnie Williams. But, oh no, for some reason, the two ladies disappeared into thin air the previous year. And who did the property end up going to? None other than Holmes. 
I think we can connect the dots here. Not saying it's solid, but definitely suspicious. So here's a man with criminal tendencies in a new place with newly inherited property. What does he do? He decides that he needs to add another castle to his collection. He starts planning and starts hiring people for the job, and everything goes the same way as it did back in Chicago. He hires multiple construction companies to work on different areas of the castle. Doesn't pay them. They get mad. They quit. Then he hires new people. But his luck was running out and his criminal past was starting to catch up to him. Not long after relocating to Fort Worth, Holmes was arrested and put in jail for the first time for selling mortgage goods. While in jail, he met a fellow prisoner and a new idea popped into his head. He needed money, and the best way to get extra money was to get life insurance on himself, fake his own death, and have his cellmates be the beneficiary, where they would then split some of the money. Despite his brilliant plan, insurance companies were skeptical because Holmes' reputation was far from great. So this plan did not work out, and after getting out of prison, he decided that this was still a great plan, but he needed a better person to do this with. Allow me to introduce to you a man named Benjamin Peitzel, a long-time acquaintance of Holmes. He explained his plan to Benjamin that he would take out a $10,000 life insurance policy on Benjamin, put himself down as the beneficiary, and when they get the money, they would split it amongst themselves. No idea if Benjamin agreed reluctantly or was on board immediately, but he was no rookie to criminal activities either. One important thing to note is that Benjamin was married and he had five kids and the family was far from well off. Getting extra money sounded amazing. It would help the family out so much and possibly help fund his drinking habit. Benjamin told his wife about the plan, and despite her protests and reluctance, they still decided to go through with this. She was probably even more desperate than her husband, as child-rearing basically fell on her, and she couldn't really count on her husband for much. The plan was set in motion, but instead of faking Benjamin's death, Holmes, of course, killed the poor man and made it look like an accident. He managed to successfully get the insurance payout under an alias, and Benjamin's wife, Carrie, had no idea what had happened. She genuinely believed that Holmes would hold up his end of the bargain, but I guess they trusted too much and believed the wrong man. Holmes met up with Carrie after the murder, telling her that he needed custody of three of their five kids, and that after everything was settled, Benjamin would reunite with the family. That's kind of weird, right? It's a very strange move, but it was later explained that by having some of the kids, Holmes had more leverage over Carrie. He managed to send her running all around the country looking for her husband, telling her that Benjamin would be waiting for her and her kids in London eventually. By keeping in touch with Carrie and having some of the kids with him, it gave him peace of mind knowing that Carrie was less likely to get suspicious and call the police. I kind of get it, but I also don't, 
because it seems like a matter of time until people catch on. In the meantime, he dragged three innocent little kids around the U.S. and Canada until one day he realized this was not a good plan. I know many of you out there are parents, and of course you love your kids, despite them being a handful at times, and honestly, traveling with small children can be a hassle. Holmes learned that the hard way. Sure, he fathered a couple kids, but he was never a real father. He had no idea how to handle children. And imagine children that weren't even his. They were probably like, Where's mommy? Where's daddy? I'm hungry. I'm cold. Nonstop. Eventually, while he was in Indianapolis, he was like, I can't do this anymore. So he took the youngest boy, Howard, away from the other two siblings, killed him, and stuffed him in a furnace. Afterwards, he returned to the other two siblings and took them to Canada, where he forced the two kids to get naked, stuffed them into a trunk, drilled a hole in the trunk, and attached a gas line to it and killed them both. Their bodies were buried in the cellar of the rented property he was staying at. Kind of insane, right? He had no idea how to handle one child, let alone three, and his solution was to kill them all? I would say he definitely regretted his decision, but not the decision to kill, but the decision to bring the kids with him. At this point, H.H. H. Holmes, age 33, was not only an infamous insurance scammer, he was also a murderer. But as far as everyone else knew, he was just a scammer. This man needed to be stopped, though. Holmes was bright and intelligent, no doubt, but he used it in the worst way possible. He probably felt that he was so smart, he would probably never get caught despite all the suspicious activities he was involved in. After all, he was charming. He had multiple wives, mistresses, and had a way of talking his way out of situations. What is the worst that could happen? What he didn't know is that the Philadelphia police had begun a case looking into his scams. This is interesting because what started as an insurance scam investigation later turned out to be one of the biggest cases in the history of the U.S. But let's start from the beginning. A detective by the name of Frank Geyer was assigned to all these cases involving Holmes and his insurance scams in 1894. What kicked off the investigation was when one of Holmes' ex-jail buddies sent a letter to the detective detailing the plan Holmes had concocted while in prison regarding the life insurance policy scam. You know, the one that did not work out. Clearly, Holmes didn't think this through, as he should have kept his mouth shut and not brag about how quote-unquote smart he was. So in the letter, the prisoner mentioned the whole scheme with Benjamin and how they planned to fake Benjamin's death in order to collect the money from the insurance company. And in this case, it was Fidelity Mutual. An investigator from Fidelity Mutual then began working together with Detective Geyer. It was confirmed that the dead body they found did indeed belong to Benjamin and not some random stand-in corpse. But whether he was murdered or was killed in an accidental explosion could not be confirmed. This was when the scam investigation turned into something way more dark, and Detective Geyer was on it. 
They followed a bunch of leads and trails, which eventually did lead them to Holmes living in Boston. But not exactly. You know how Holmes liked to play pretend, giving fake names to everyone and their mother, pretending to be single, acting rich? Well, the police found him living with his family, but not his parents, not his OG wife, Clara, and not his second wife, Murda. It was, in fact, his third wife, Georgina Yoke, whom he married in early 1894. And she had no idea who H.H. H. Holmes was, because to her, he was Henry Mansfield Howard. Despite using aliases, you could kind of see his lack of creativity as he kind of just recycles all his different names and rearranges them. Not that original, apparently. On November 17, 1894, H.H. H. Holmes was finally arrested. Good grief. Now it's time to look at the details of his arrest, his confessions, his victims, and whether or not we believe what he says or not, because he is a known liar and it's really difficult to say what's real and what's fake. His initial arrest was not for murder, not for insurance fraud, but for horse stealing back in Fort Worth, Texas. But Holmes did not know that. He had so many crimes under his belt, he probably lost count. He made the mistake of asking the police if he was arrested for insurance fraud, and then began a series of quote-unquote confessions. First, let's look at the Peitzel family situation. Carrie, Benjamin's wife, was brought in as well, as they found she was an accomplice to this insurance scam. She told the police that she believed her husband was still alive and hiding somewhere, waiting for the coast to be clear so he can reunite with his family. She had no idea he was, in fact, dead. Holmes, on the other hand, admitted that yes, Benjamin was indeed dead, but not via murder. Holmes gave a very long confession about how he had indeed planned the whole thing, but when they were ready to pull it off, he had found Benjamin at the apartment unit, dead. You see, their ultimate plan was to grab a random corpse, create some chemical lab explosion, and since the body would be unrecognizable, they believed it would be passed off as Benjamin. But Holmes said he found Benjamin dead in a room full of chemical fumes, suggesting that something went wrong and Benjamin accidentally killed himself while setting up the room. Benjamin was known to be an alcoholic and a petty crook. But despite Holmes's account of what happened, the authorities decided they had to dig in further because they just could not trust him. Holmes first went on trial for insurance fraud, not murder, in June of 1895. He pled guilty under the advice of his counsel, stating that since it was just conspiracy and fraud, he would very likely only get a couple years tops if he pled guilty. But this didn't work out either as detectives were now wondering about the Peitzel kids. They know Holmes took at least three of them, and when he was arrested, there were zero Peitzel kids around. So where the heck were they? During an intense meeting with the district attorney, he was informed that they wanted him to tell them and show them where the three Peitzel kids were at. And if he couldn't do that, then it must be because he killed them all. Holmes had an explanation for everything, though. And without missing a beat, he told the district attorney that during his voyage around America and Canada, 
he had sent the kids off separately to a Miss Williams, who happened to be one of the two young women who disappeared from Fort Worth, Texas in 1893. Because Miss Williams was already missing and most likely dead at the hands of Holmes, they didn't believe a single word he said. The police had already been investigating the disappearance of both Annie and Minnie Williams, so they of course questioned him on their whereabouts and his relationship with them. Holmes admitted that he was intimate with both women, but he did not kill them. In actuality, Minnie had gotten angry at Annie for whatever reason and accidentally killed her. Holmes, being the good lover that he is, decided to help cover up her crime and threw Annie's body into a lake. So he was basically confessing to covering up a crime, but that was still better than confessing to murder. More and more missing persons with connection to Holmes began popping up left and right. So to make a very long and grueling investigation story shorter, here are the facts of the case. Detective Guy went around the country trying to search all the possible rentals that Holmes stayed at, either alone or with the three children he had custody of. He went from place to place, following leads, asking witnesses for information, and in July of 1895, the bodies of the two Peitzel girls were found in the cellar, where Holmes had dumped them. Next up, they needed to locate the youngest Peitzel boy, Howard. After more traveling, more questioning, and more confirmations, Detective Geyer was able to locate Howard's remains stuffed in an old chimney. Some of his organs were charred, but still identifiable, and with the help of a dentist, they were able to confirm the identity of little Howard Peitzel. Must have been a relief to finally get to the bottom of the children's whereabouts, but it must have been traumatizing for their mother. I can't imagine how she must have felt, how much regret she carried with her till the day she died. There's always these if-only thoughts, but who knew? Sure, she was a bit too trusting, but she also had no reason to think that he would kill her kids. We know that Holmes did more than just murder Benjamin and the three Peitzel kids. Who else fell victim to his fraud? Let's go back in time a bit first. So after Holmes moved to Chicago to start a new life, he married his second wife, Murda. What she didn't know was that while he was married to her, he continued to pick up various different women, but probably not for love or lust, unless you count the lust and love he felt for money. His first mistress in Chicago was a woman named Julia Smith. Interestingly enough, she was a married woman, but this doesn't make them even as they wanted completely different things. Before long, Julia's husband found out about the sordid affair and he decided he needed to put up boundaries, and so he left his wife and her daughter, Pearl. Julia and Holmes continued the affair until one day, around Christmas of 1891, both her and her daughter vanished. When questioned about their disappearance, Holmes claimed that Julia had fallen pregnant, and since none of them wanted another child, he decided to help her abort the baby. Unfortunately, he wasn't skilled enough so she died during the operation. As for little Pearl, well, Holmes felt bad that she lost both her mother and father, so he did the most humane thing, in his opinion, and poisoned her. Another woman entered the picture in 1892, Emmeline. 
She was Holmes' lover for a few months until she also supposedly fell pregnant and also died during abortion surgery. Let's move on to two familiar names, Minnie and Annie Williams. According to Holmes, he and Minnie became rather close after she moved to Chicago for a short while. It was there that he charmed her into writing his name into her Fort Worth property, and that's how he inherited the place after they went missing. Minnie and Holmes even went as far as to rent an apartment together in Chicago, pretending to be wife and husband. Some sources, though, claim that they did in fact get married, so that means Holmes had collected four wives over his lifespan. Not three. After moving in together, Minnie's sister came for a visit, and that would be the last time anyone ever heard from the Williams sisters. The ones I mentioned above were the likely murders committed by Holmes. There were various others that vanished or ended up dead, but it was a lot more difficult to prove Holmes played a part in them. This includes a woman named Evelyn Van Tassel, who worked in this castle, a doctor who rented an office in his castle, a stenographer who worked for Holmes, a tourist who visited Chicago for the World Fair, another man from Indiana who worked for Holmes and had him as his beneficiary in his life insurance policy. And of course, there were many others like them. These disappearances could not exactly be tied back to Holmes, despite him even admitting to killing some of these people. Knowing how he was a fraud and a scammer by nature, it was really difficult to believe him. You might think, why would he admit to murder if he didn't commit it? Well, some people want to take credit. They do it for the clout. In other cases, they want to mess with the police and the general public. Some even think, why not? I'm probably never getting out alive, so why not lie a little? Despite all the circumstantial evidence stacked against him, he couldn't be tried for any of them because, well, they were circumstantial. So in October of 1985, Holmes finally went on trial for murder, but only for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. More than 35 witnesses took to the stand to detail their encounter with Holmes, and I would say it was not in his favor. Experts also shared their findings regarding Benjamin's death, stating that Benjamin could not have killed himself as his manner of death did not fit the circumstances, and it was more likely than not murder. With all this evidence against Holmes piling up, his time was finally up. He was found very guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Holmes' new fate was set in stone, but that didn't really change him as a person as in he remained calm, poised, and continued to lie about everything, making up absurd tales, and handing out contradicting information. In the end, he confessed to committing 27 murders throughout the U.S. and Canada, and an additional six attempted murders, including Carrie Peitzel and her two remaining children. Before he was hanged the following year, on May 7, 1896, he made a request to have his coffin encased with cement and buried deep underground because he didn't want anyone trying to dig him up and stealing his body. That's kind of hilarious. 
This is not something most of us even think of, but because he's been on the other side of grave robbing, he knew what to expect. He knew people probably hated him, and he certainly had many enemies. If they couldn't kill him themselves, they would probably take joy in desecrating his body. When the hanging took place, it was said that he died a rather slow death as his neck did not break when the trapdoor opened underneath him. It took about 20 minutes for his body to finally stop struggling, and he was finally pronounced dead. Holmes was only 34 years old, probably considered middle-aged at the time, but I can't help but think what he could have done if he never went down this path. Either way, the terror that is H.H. Holmes was finally over. A very famous quote from Holmes goes, quote, I was born with the very devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspiration to song, nor the ambition of an intellectual man to be great. The inclination to murder came to me as naturally as the inspiration to do right comes to the majority of persons. Unquote. What do you think? As for all the tall tales about Holmes Castle, about how it was so intricate, how he had torture chambers, how it was full of secret rooms? Well, these myths were debunked later on. People said the castle was just a regular building with a few more extra hidden places than your average building, because Holmes wanted to hide stolen goods. There was no torture chamber, no intricate traps, no gas chambers. It's not surprising that people could have exaggerated the extent of the castle, because knowing how ruthless and cold-blooded Holmes was, it probably wasn't hard to imagine him going through lengths to murder people in secret. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your views, the castle was set on fire while Holmes was being tried in court. It was eventually salvaged and used as a post office until the year 1938. Must have been weird and creepy working in that post office, thinking of all the people that disappeared in there, all the urban legends floating around, and possibly all the death that the building has seen. I know for a fact most of you have heard of H.H. Holmes, but maybe like me, you didn't know the extent of his crimes and how he operated. We know him as America's first serial killer, but honestly, that's just as far as we know. Who knows how many others were out there before him, but never got caught. Maybe you believed, or continue to believe, that there is more to the castle than what people are saying. Could it really have been that cleverly planned out? A huge building full of death traps and secret passageways? It's almost like a scene from a movie, or even a haunted house. But let's say there is a haunted house, a survival escape room game based off of H.H. Holmes's mansion. Would you join in? If yes, I absolutely applaud and salute your bravery, because count me out. I love horror, but only via screens. If you're anything like me, then you will most definitely enjoy The Devil and Me, the fourth and last installment from the Dark Pictures Anthology series. Without giving too much away, but I probably will anyway, the game's story surrounds a group of documentary filmmakers will get a call that changes their lives. They get invited to a modern-day replica of the original Holmes Castle slash hotel. This is quite the opportunity if you're in the creative business looking for new content. 
and experiencing it firsthand definitely beats hearing and reporting about it. So the five crew members go, and as you can imagine, it is full of twists and turns, so many decisions to make for each character, and the desire to make sure everyone stays alive is strong, but also so difficult. Every decision you make in the game can lead to someone either dying or staying alive, and it's not always the decision you think is rational. It's also worth mentioning that the mansion in the game is mapped out very intricately, very true to the idea of what Holmes's castle could have been like, with all these trapdoors, secret rooms, doors that lead nowhere, etc. Like a true fangirl, I got the chance to start the game earlier last week, and let me tell you, it's a wild ride. Jump scares? Check. Difficult choices? Check. Likeable characters? Check. Less likable characters? Also, check. Let's be real. Every character has flaws, and you won't end up loving everyone. My husband and I are both major horror fans, and we spent an entire afternoon and evening making difficult choices and lamenting some of our choices. Not to throw shade at him or anything, but he ended up killing two of our favorite characters, and this made him determined to replay the game later on so he could make better choices. Like I mentioned, you have the opportunity to either play it alone by navigating five different characters, or you can invite your friends over to play with them, where you just kind of pass it on to the next person when the character shows up. If you have long-distance friendships, you can also play together online. My husband and I divided up the characters, him taking up three and I two. And as I write this episode, three of them are dead and I am determined to at least have one person make it out alive. Just knowing that I can keep all of them alive is enough to make me want to replay the game. In other words, the game is definitely worth your time, as you can replay it so many times and probably get different endings and results each time. I'm recommending this game because I'm a horror fan, but also, none of their previous games disappointed me. Sure, It might sound like your typical slasher genre, very scream and I know what you did last summer vibes, but watching a movie is way more relaxing than trying to make choices and guiding the characters. A bonus point is that this installment touches on true crime quite a bit, albeit fictional, and I know most of you are probably interested in true crime. If you're up for a game like this, where you have more control and get to play a variety of roles and endings, then this is the game you must try out. In a 1937 article from the Chicago Tribune, Holmes's castle was described as, quote, Oh, what a queer house it was. In all America, there was none other like it. Its chimneys stuck out where chimneys should never stick out. Its stairways ended nowhere in particular. Winding passages brought the uninitiated with a frightful jerk back to where they had started from. There were rooms that had no doors. There were doors that had no rooms. A mysterious house it was, indeed. A crooked house. A reflex of the builder's own distorted mind. In that house occurred dark and eerie deeds. This was published decades after the crimes of H.H. Holmes, so whether you believe this or not, it's up to you. I cannot imagine anyone can say with 100% certainty that this castle was a regular building, 
because everyone from the time period is long dead, and those who had the misfortune of seeing it in person are also long gone, either by the hands of Holmes or other causes. Either way, if you want to experience what this murder castle could have been like, check out The Devil and Me from the Dark Pictures Anthology, now available on Bandai Namco Entertainment Asia's e-store. Links will be provided in the show notes. So there you have it. A gruesome tale of a man who used his intelligence in all the wrong areas. A man who claimed that he was born with a devil in him. Is this nature or nurture? Maybe lots of us lean towards the idea that it's a mixture of both. Uncertain factors ranging from your personality to your life events can lead to varying decisions. If Holmes had grown up in a loving household and never gotten bullied, would he have been any different? Difficult to say, but it would definitely be a good start to someone's life. I cannot imagine the fear and betrayal people felt when Holmes turned on them, especially those that loved him and trusted him. There should never be a good reason to turn on loved ones or go out of your way to harm people for your own gain. With that said, please remember to be kind to your family, your friends, and strangers. We all have our issues and our own struggles, but your kindness can go a long way and change someone's life, even if it's just for the moment. Thank you for tuning in to this bonus episode. Your support always means the world to me. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.